opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right, everybody. We have awards to hand out tonight. And I'm wondering if, I know everybody's eating and I'm really sorry about that, but I'm wondering if Virginia could come up here and read this award and then we can present it to the lucky recipient. Okay. The Daryl M. is presented to Beverly Cascaden for outstanding service to the Missouri Council of the Blind and all blind Missourians. Award. Well, give it to Ben first. Ben, need to say something. Yeah, oh, Ben. <laughs> my goodness. Virginia, were you on this too? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe this. They're crying. I'm crying. <laughs> oh, you can't help but love MCB. I love you all so, so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Stand still for a second so she can get a picture. Hold still, yeah, so we can get a picture. You're good right there. Are we okay this way? Okay. It's right. It's good. Okay. It's got braille on it. Yeah, you'll be able to read it. Okay, everyone. Next up is the Nathaniel Johnson Award. And this year it's presented to Wanda Madlock for her outstanding work on behalf of the Missouri Council of the Blind. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't be more surprised. Um, I don't even know what to say. I mean, it's... Thank you so much for thinking that much of me. I don't know what I did, but thank you, MCB. Thank you, Kay and Chip and everybody that's on the... Is it the executive committee that picks? Yes. Anyway, thank you, everybody. I appreciate it so much. Okay, Wanda, can you stand with Kay and Chip now? So can you get a picture? Oh, here's your award, Wanda. Okay, next up, we have the Michael H. Keller Community Service Award. And this year, it's presented to the Governor's Council on Disability for outstanding service to the blind community of Missouri with heartfelt thanks from the Missouri Council of the Blind. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been a part of the Governor's Council on Disability for the last several years. And I got to know this executive director. She's just a terrific lady. She has taken this organization, the Governor's Council on Disability, taken it to new heights. And I think she is so well deserving of this award. So ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together and let's welcome Claudia Browner. Yeah, I am. Thank you very much. Uh, you, 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 you say something here. Sure. 
thank you very much for inviting me to this event tonight, and I'm honored to accept this award on behalf of the Governor's Council on Disability. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, Beverly, Cascaden, could you come up here so you can present this next award? Yeah, Beverly, bring your award back. We want it back. Not, not really. The MCB Helping Hands Award this year is presented to the St. Louis Lighthouse for the Blind for their unflagging support and commitment to the blind community of Missouri and the Missouri Council of the Blind. I can't believe begin to tell you how much we appreciate the St. Louis Lighthouse for the Blind. They have been they have been donating to our summer camp program for years to help our members go to camp. They've also given a great contribution to our adaptive technology program to help assist all any of our members who qualify. Oh my gosh, I can't catch my breath, guys. <laughs> but we really, where are you, Angie? Angie, oh. Yes. Are you chewing too? All right. All right. Thank you so much for everything you've done for Missouri Council. We appreciate you. So. I'm here with Angie. My name is Brian Hauser. I'm, we're both employees of Lighthouse for the Blind. The two of us combined have been there 38 years, so we kind of like it. It's a great company to work for. Uh, Angie is the, I'm the director of sales, so I have to make money so she can give it away. She is the Blind Community Enrichment Programs Manager and does a great job and is a great coworker and friend. But uh, on behalf of the Lighthouse for the Blind in St. Louis, we'd like to thank Missouri Council of the Blind for this award. Um, i got to read something here just to make sure. Oh, wait, by the way, where's Bob Jaco? Is he still in here? <clears throat> hey, Bob, good to see you. I have stories about Bob if anybody wants to know. Just come to my table later. <laughs> Oh, by the way, Cardinal game is still 0-0. Zero, zero. Uh, thank you for recognizing our work and our passion to support the blind community of Missouri. We, continue, we plan to continue to do so. Appreciate the invitation and the award and uh, love being a part of this. So thank you very much. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Okay. Next up. Oh. And the presidential award for this year is presented to Chip Haley for outstanding service to the president of the Missouri Council of the Blind. And here you go, Chip. 
want to say something? Here you go. Who's first? You go first. All right. I, I just wanted to, I, I have appreciated the job that Chip has done. You have no idea. I mean, he has been there through thick and thin, come up with ideas. Nope, you can't do that, Kay. You can do this. And, and he's just been a great supporter. And not only just to me, but to everybody else. He pretty much laid it out and said, here's what I think. Here's what I know. And so I, I really feel like this award is well given. And you have no idea how much I appreciate you, Chips. Thank you so much. Thank you, Madam President. It is with the greatest and humblest, sincerest attitude that I can express. Thank you so much for this honor. I always consider it a privilege to be able to serve. All I want to do is to continue to have a servant's heart. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't care what level, what uh, area, program, service that MCB provides, I want to be able to serve. That's all I want to do. I want to be able to serve in any capacity. And I just thank you all so very, very much. God bless you all. Before we bring out our keynote speaker, I just want to take a moment uh, to give a huge special thanks to a couple of folks uh, because I've had a moment just to realize how much work goes into putting on one of these events. And once again, I... I, I I'm speechless and cannot imagine how Nancy and, and Virginia are able to do this year after year with the quality product that they put out every year. Can we give a hand for Nancy and Virginia? I'm standing here and they're just telling me, okay, all you have to do is, and I'm like, uh, what, who? And also, um, Kay, Chip, you guys have done a phenomenal job, and we are so glad to have you as president and vice president of MCB. Can we give them one more hand? I want to give a special thanks and uh, I'll talk to you later to one uh, one of the members of Agape, and that is Wilma Chestnut. Uh, she had a crazy idea. Why doesn't Agape host this? So let's give a hand for Wilma Chestnut. I'll talk to you later. Okay. And uh, I also want to give a special thanks to all of the volunteers and all the members of Agape. You guys have been so phenomenal. Those are the folks that are the true heroes. I'm going to turn this over to our, our president, Miss Kay. Okay. Hey, um, I, I really I wanted to thank everybody for the job that they did, the hotel staff, the, the people that put this convention together, the convention committee, and everything else. And one of the things that I, really, I forgot to do was read the sponsors for this year's convention. So 
as sea, at Seabiscuit level is Nanopack Incorporated. And there's also 924 Vander Pharmaceuticals. At the trigger levels, trigger sponsor level is Agape, Council of the Blind. At Mr. Ed level, sponsorship is Patrick and Treva Patton, Wilma Chestnut House. And at the Francis level is Mary's Braille Transcribing Services. And I just wanted to give them credit. I'm, I know the list is short, but honestly, we appreciate them all as well. So I'm just stopping by to say have fun tonight. Enjoy the band. Enjoy the keynote speaker. I think Raymond's going to be a, a really interesting speaker. And so have fun, guys. Take care. All right, folks, let's get down to business. Woo! It's baseball time, people. Can I hear it? Is this not Redbird Nation? This is Redbird Nation, is it not? Can I get my Cardinal fans? All right. Before Bob Gibson, this is Cardinal Nation, baby. You can't stop us. <laughs> We give, we give other teams, uh, we give them a little head start. We spot them a couple games just to make it interesting. Okay, before Bob Gibson, before Ozzie Smith, Willie McGee, Pujols, Yachty, there was a little-known league. And our keynote speaker is going to speak about that league. It is the National League Baseball Museum. It's actually, I got that wrong again for the fourth. It's the Negro League Baseball Museum. Straight out of Kansas City, Missouri. Do I have any Kansas City folks here? Home. You guys need to be proud. That is one of the outstanding and unique museums in this country. It is the only museum. And our guest speaker, Mr. Raymond Doswell, a St. Louis native, did his degree across the water in Mammoth College, studied history, came back to St. Louis, was a history teacher for several years, did his graduate work in Cal University of California, Riverside, and came back home to Kansas City, Missouri, where he is now the Vice President, the Director of Educational Services, and we are honored to have him here and to hear his stories about those forgotten players from long, long time ago. Mr. Raymond Doswell. Thank you, thank you. All right. Hello, baseball fans. All right. I heard that. I heard that. I heard that. Something might be gaining on you, according to Satchel Page. But uh, we're glad to be here. We thank you for the invitation tonight. And very pleased to uh, speak to your group. 
So, as noted, I'm Raymond Doswell. I'm from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I want to offer you some thoughts on, on, and stories on black baseball and black history. And on behalf of our president, Bob Kendrick, which I understand some of you may listen to him on your XM Radio podcast, that I'm honored to be here uh, with you. Um, also, as, as noted, I am a native of St. Louis, Missouri. I grew up here. East St. Louis Senior High School, class of 87. And there, whenever there's an opportunity to come home to uh, St. Louis, we like to give you that, op- they like to give me that opportunity to come speak, all right? So yeah, can I get everybody's attention, please? I used to be a school teacher, so I know how to do this. I can... We can make you write lines and other things, so just be careful, okay? All right, but we don't want to do that. We want to talk to you a little bit about baseball. We want to talk to you a little bit about black history. And uh, we don't want to assume that you are all baseball fans, uh, but uh, you probably have heard some names and some stories. Um, Now I can discuss a few of those tonight, uh, but I hope to share with you a few stories that maybe you haven't heard. Um, One such story involves an an item we have at the museum. We have a very unique item at the museum, uh, and when you come to the museum, we like to talk about it because it's very special. Actually, though, it's one of the smallest things that we have at the museum. It is actually just a Polaroid photo of a baseball player. And on that photo is a young man. He's standing literally on the train tracks at a train station. All right? And in this photograph, he's, he's squinting from looking at the sun, uh, but he's in working clothes. He's got his duffel bag next to him, but he's on his way to try to get his fame and fortune playing baseball, all right? Young African-American man. Now, we have this photo, and then there's a letter that's next to the photo that we're able to get a copy of. And in the letter, there are two baseball officials and they're discussing this young man because they're recruiting him for their baseball team. And in the letter, one of the officials says, I do think he will develop into a great player one of these days. I do think he will develop into a great player one of these days. All right? Now, I'll tell you a little bit more about him later in my talk. Uh, But it's an ordinary moment that's captured for the ages. Uh, And it's made more interesting by the letter and who this person really is, which I'll tell you later. But he's going to, sh- to share his, try to win his fortune in the Negro Leagues. So what can I tell you about the Negro Leagues? What were the Negro Leagues? Now I define the Negro Leagues as the highest level of baseball that was available to African Americans and Latino athletes from the late 1800s through the 1960s. Now, there are also uh, different businesses and different things. They use the term Negro or colored. Of course, we don't use those terms anymore, but we have those terms as they were used back then. Now, first, we need to understand, though, why there had to be these separate baseball leagues in the first place. Simply, racism and segregation. And baseball, uh, as a sport in America, was coming of age in the late 1800s. It began to see first professional players and teams form in the 1860s, and then the creation of professional leagues by the mid-1880s. 
But African Americans uh, had witnessed the evolution of these ball and stick games, even during slavery times. And as the game was moving on, they excelled at it, they played it, and they became, they became masters of it. However, when pursuing opportunities to form their own teams to join these professional leagues, uh, they were turned away. There was never any written rule that said that black people couldn't play in the so-called major leagues. It was basically just collusion among the team owners and managers not to sign these players. A so-called gentleman's agreement that uh, refused, that uh, didn't allow players to be recruited. So there were some exceptions to individuals uh, who got a chance to play. All black teams couldn't play, but certain individuals did get to play. Perhaps maybe you've heard of a player named Moses Fleetwood Walker. Well, some people have, but most people have not. Now, by most historical accounts, Walker is the first black player to play Major League Baseball. Maybe not who you thought it was, but he's playing in a team in Toledo, Ohio in the late 1880s. Now, technically, there was somebody even before him, a gentleman named William White, ironically, uh, playing 1879 in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, but White looked white and pretended to be white. <laughs> and so they usually turned to Walker as the first person because Walker could not hide his ethnicity. But still, by 1900, players like White and Walker were pushed out of these leagues. So black baseball entrepreneurs tried to do their own thing while traveling across the U.S. as entertainers, making efforts to schedule games just like vaudeville entertainers of the times. They played against all levels of competition, black, white, or other. And this had its ups and downs, the perils of uncertainty of traveling from place to place in segregated America at the whims of the train schedules and the weather was not always economically viable. For black teams having league structures meaning you know, playing common opponents on a regular schedule and governing bodies that would manage their, um, um, their disputes and trades. Those are the things that were important. And having league structures meant stability. Meant stability. Teams could last longer if they had a league. But there were attempts to create leagues in the late 1800s and through the early 1900s, but none of those were stable. By the time we get to 1920, in a pivotal year, 1920, is when things begin to change and the circumstances seem to converge appropriately for success. So in 1920, we're coming out of World War I. We're coming off of the massive so-called Spanish flu pandemic, the extended red summer of racial uh, violence, um, including, unfortunately, the race riots in East St. Louis in 1917, and most importantly, the Great Migration of African Americans moving from the rural South and farming and sharecropping into cities like Kansas City and Chicago and Detroit and St. Louis, just to name a few. And the mostly Midwestern independent baseball teams got together at a meeting in Kansas City at the old Paseo YMCA, which was a black YMCA. It has its own unique history. And they hammered out an arrangement to create what they call the Negro National League. The Negro National League. And that was the beginning of Negro Leagues baseball as we know it. Rival leagues formed in the East Coast and in the Southeast, and they all began to play together. Baseball players were testing the waters of integration during this time. They had positive and negative experiences as they went through. 
But the ball players were not immune to issues of segregation, of racism, of labor, of everything, war, and everything in between. But their creativity, their fortitude, entrepreneurship, and perseverance have had a great impact on American culture. Now, we won't have time to go over all the great th uh, people and innovations in the Negro Leagues, but there are just a few that I can mention here, okay? So first, there were teams that mastered travel within segregation, where teams were, were able to enjoy a great deal of success. Now, as the country began to move from less rural areas to urban areas, you were able to enjoy the highways and travel safely as you moved around the country. Now, for black baseball teams, uh, that was very important. The teams that could master traveling around the country were the ones that were most successful. For example, before, as, as, um, as, we, as we heard earlier, there were great players. Most of those were St. Louis Cardinals players, um, like Bob Gibson and others. There was a team here called the St. Louis Stars. They played on whereas the, the current campus of Harris Stowe University is where they, and they were on a few teams that had their own baseball stadium of, of the black baseball teams. But they were able to travel around the country as much as they could. One of the things they could do is travel to Kansas City and play their league uh, counterpart, the Kansas City Monarchs. But along the way, in the roads before Interstate 70, they were able to play in places like Jefferson City or Columbia, Missouri or Lee Summit, Missouri. These were black and white teams that they could play against before they got to Kansas City to play their league games. You got to schedule a lot of these games. You made more money. You made more money, you were more stable. And that was important for many teams like that. So having a bus and not waiting on the train was very important to these teams, all right? And the teams that can master that, Kansas City was very good at that. Those were the teams that were most successful, all right? And they needed to have that. Because traveling around the Midwest while you were black was dangerous, all right? Many rural areas had towns that had so-called sundown town laws on the books. That meant curfews for African Americans after a certain time at night when you were traveling around the country. To that point, black teams who were able to manage travel and manage it safely was very important. You all have heard of the Green Book? Some of you have heard of the Green Book, all right? That, that was the uh, so-called Negro Motorist Guide put together by postal workers. So if you were traveling across the country and you're African-American, these were advertisements that were in this magazine that shared places where you could stay safely, the gas stations where you can go to, places you can eat. And the ball teams, along with the other entertainers that were traveling across the country, used the Green Book religiously so they knew places where they could go. But... And unfortunately, Missouri had lots of towns with sundown laws, including Illinois and Ohio and Indiana. So these were important things to know. But if you mastered to travel safely, you could make more money. The other one of the other creative innovations that black baseball teams had were playing night baseball. All right? So a lot of, as we get to the Great Depression in 1930, you had a lot of teams uh, in communities all over the country that were experimenting with having lights at their stadium. All right? But... What the Kansas City Monarchs baseball team did was they created a portable lighting system, all right? They had trucks and poles and lights and guide wires that they could take with them wherever they went. 
in many cases bringing night baseball for the first time to many communities. This is five years before the first official night baseball game in Major League Baseball. So it's a very important innovation. And they had to do it during 1930 uh, because of the Great Depression. And many uh, communities suffered. Uh, they couldn't afford to go to baseball games, and certainly not during the day. So going to baseball games at night was very important. And so having that innovation was very important. Now, by 1933, another innovation was that black teams had their own all-star game, the East-West Classic, they called it, which was a fan vote uh, in the black newspapers, which were weekly newspapers, and fans would vote on players that they liked that would go to the All-Star game. But the unique innovation was they had the game every year in Chicago, for the most part. They played a couple places in other times. But they played in Chicago every year at Comiskey Park. Why? Comiskey Park was on the south side of Chicago. That's where all the black people were. That's where they lived. It's a big baseball stadium. It was owned by the Chicago White Sox. It was a safe place for people to go as they were traveling across the country. And they would outdraw the White Sox at many games because they could get 50,000 people in the stadium. A very important highlight of the summer for, for black baseball teams. So all in all, between 1920 and 1960, you had about 30 different communities and about 70 plus teams, not all competing at the same time, organized into about eight different leagues. And I want to say leagues plural. A lot of people like to say Negro League. It's leagues with an S. There were several different leagues that were part of uh, the, the so-called Negro Leagues. Now, black players get an opportunity to compete on all white major league teams uh, after 50 years uh, thanks to America's changing society. World War II was a major revelation. Now, African Americans are still enduring poor treatment at home while black soldiers die fighting against same injustices abroad. The irony is not lost on many influential people, especially in the black press and other places. All right? the, the place where the example of this uh, is really prevalent is actually in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. So there is a team that you may have heard of called the Homestead Grays. All right? Homestead is actually in Pittsburgh. It's a suburb of Pittsburgh. But there was a team there called the Homestead Grays, a really good team, although they had to leave that area because they actually lost a lot of their players to a rival team, the Pittsburgh Crawfords. Um, who in the black community has the wealth to run a baseball team? Maybe a doctor, maybe a lawyer. But the Pittsburgh Crawfords were run by a man named Gus Greenlee. And I like to call Greenlee a benevolent gangster. <laughs> Greenlee ran the illegal numbers in, in Pittsburgh. Right. But he had legitimate business. He had a restaurant. He had some other things, a bar. Uh, but he loved baseball. And he raided the Grays because he could pay them more of those, those top players. What did the Grays do? Well, they took advantage of that to get back on their feet. They moved their operations to Washington, D.C. They played at Old Griffith Stadium. Um, which is a big ballpark owned by the team there, the Washington Senators. Why Griffith Stadium? It's in the heart of the black community. It's a huge baseball stadium. It's actually, the stadium's gone, but it was the site of Howard University Hospital now. If you know Howard University, it's an African-American college. All right? That's where the stadium was. Influx, by this time, this is the mid-1930s, an influx of, of people, black people especially, moving to D.C. because of the war. We're at World War II now. Uh, the war, the defense industry, and many blacks are there 
taking advantage of the jobs and things like that. So the Grays are renting the stadium from the white baseball team, all right? The Grays are in a stretch between the mid-30s to right around the, the uh, end of World War II of nine straight Negro League postseason appearances in the playoffs for nine straight years, all right? And they played their games on Sundays when they rented the stadium. You could go back on Tuesday, and you're a white fan. You can go to these black baseball games. You go back on Tuesday and watch the Washington Senators, all right? The Senators, in this same time period as the Grays, only have one winning season, all right? They're one of the worst teams in baseball, period. What's the old saying back then? Washington, first in war, first in peace, last in the American League East. You're a white fan. You go on Sunday. You see the Grays. The Grays are tearing up the ball. You come back on Tuesday. You see the Senators and wonder what you're watching. You want, why can't we have these players? It's just because they're black. Well, that doesn't make sense. Fans are starting to talk about this, all right? African Americans, as I said, are giving their effort in the war. Another battleground for this, or at least a ground that, that proves to be very interesting, is, is New York City. New York City has three Major League Baseball teams, the Giants, the Yankees, and the Dodgers, all right? Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, along with city council members, are telling the baseball teams and many other industries, you need to think about integration. And baseball becomes a testing ground for a lot of these issues, all right? I mean, three baseball teams, three baseball parks, they all want stuff from the city. They want to sell liquor on Sundays. They want permits for certain things. They want tax breaks. You need to think about integration, all right? He's putting, the, he's putting pressure on these teams. Um, but none of them really respond very quickly. Now, we do know later that one team was in the background trying some things uh, that would come out later. Even the Yankees general manager, Lee McPhail, and we have the letter at the museum, wrote out to the mayor many reasons why they should not integrate, all right? Uh, some of those reasons were quite racist. Some of them, in his mind, though, made economic sense. I mentioned the Grays in D.C. are renting the stadium from the white baseball team. The Monarchs in Kansas City are renting municipal stadium, or what was called Muehlbach Field at the time, from the white minor league baseball team. That minor league team was the affiliate of the New York Yankees, all right, in New York. Black teams are renting Yankee Stadium. In Newark, New Jersey, the Newark Eagles black baseball team is renting from the Newark Bears, the minor league team of the New York Yankees. The Yankees are in no hurry to integrate, and he says so in the letter that they made in 1943 $100,000 off segregated baseball. Now, I don't know how I don't do the math on trying to translate to what that means today, but it's certainly well over a million dollars. They have no incentive to integrate, but they're still being pushed by the mayor and other teams, I mean, and other uh, officials. This is a time when we meet a young man named Jack Roosevelt Robinson, all right? You may know him as Jackie, all right? Now, he's a multi-sport college athlete uh, raised in California, but his family in 1919, when he was a baby, through the migration, tra uh, transferred all the way across the country from Cairo, Georgia. They don't get more southern than Cairo, Georgia. It is right above the Florida panhandle. Um, and they were sharecroppers, but they escaped sharecropping, go all the way across the country to Pasadena during the migration, where he lived in a very poor existence with a large family. 
Now, his brother was an outstanding collegiate athlete, but Robinson, Jackie, his brother Mac, actually was on the 36 Olympic team with Jesse Owens. But Jackie came along and broke all his brother's track and field records. Um, he went to Pasadena Junior College and then transferred to uh, UCLA, where he played track and field, basketball, football, was a halfback in football, played in the Rose Bowl, uh, and played baseball. Baseball was his worst sport. He was better at everything else. He was a good golfer. He could play tennis. He was good looking. You hated him. But he was able to parlay baseball after his stint in the military, uh, not too far from here at Fort Riley, Kansas, uh, where he was an infantryman, then transferred to Texas and was court-martialed for not moving to the back of a bus when the civilian bus driver told him to move. Um, he beat that rap, wanted to get out of the Army, needed a job. Guess who was hiring? The Negro Leagues. He came to the Kansas City Monarchs where he met Satchel Paige and many other players. Played in 1945. And as I mentioned earlier, there was a team in New York secretly plotting to get a black player, and that was the Brooklyn Dodgers, all right? And they finally turned to Robinson uh, after scouring the country. Robinson's 26 years old at the time, a little old for a rookie baseball player. But having had all these other experiences, uh, they settled on Robinson, signed him to a minor league contract, and 75 years ago this past April, he ascends to uh, playing Major League Baseball with the Dodgers, um, the first African-American since Walker to play Major League Baseball, all right? And Robinson's success opens the door for many other players in the Major Leagues, like Hank Thompson, maybe that's the name you heard of. Thompson played with the Monarchs. And actually Thompson, Willard Brown, and Dan Bankhead, and Larry Doby were four other players who actually ascended to Major League Baseball from the Negro Leagues the same year as Robinson. You don't hear much about them. But Thompson is one, uh, and he played, uh, and guess where he played? St. Louis with the St. Louis Browns baseball team, along with Willard Brown, all right? But Thompson didn't last long with the Browns, but went to the New York Giants, uh, where they won a world championship. They had a young rookie there that come along in the, in the early 50s. One you may have heard of, his name was Willie Mays. Uh, who started in Birmingham in the Negro Leagues. Um, there were great Latin stars who played in these leagues, like Orestes Minoso. Maybe you know him as Mini Minoso, uh, who uh, started with the Cleveland team and then transferred to the Chicago White Sox, helping them win the championship. It opened the door for coaches and managers. Um, a patriarch of the museum is John Buck O'Neill who was an outstanding player and first baseman with the Kansas City Monarchs, uh, became a coach and a scout in Major League Baseball, and became the first African-American coach uh, in Major League Baseball in 1962, helping to recruit great players like Ernie Banks, um, Billy Williams, and one guy that we know very well here in St. Louis, Lou Brock. And... and Lou Brock is my absolute favorite player of all time. And, and somebody that I got to meet and get to know him and his wife a little bit, Jackie, as well. So he is dearly missed at the baseball museum because he looked at Buck O'Neill as, as a surrogate father. So he's a very important player to me personally and to our museum. Um, and later on, you get Frank Robinson and Larry Doby becoming managers uh, in Major League Baseball. 
But although you start to see this trickle of ball players coming, it takes from 1947 to 1959 before every major league team has at least one black and Latino player on their roster. 12 years. Robinson only plays 10 of those years before full integration. Um, the St. Louis Cardinals were a little slow, uh, but they had a young man named Tom Alston, who, who was from North Carolina. Unfortunately, he didn't last very long as a major league ball player, uh, but, and the Cardinals were very slow, unfortunately, but when they did begin to integrate, that's when we hear Bob Gibson. That's when we hear Lou Brock in a trade from the Cubs. That's when we eventually get to Orlando Cepeda. Uh, that's when eventually we get to Kurt Flood. And the Cardinals were very aggressive and got some of the best players winning championships in the 1960s. So although it was very messy and slow, integration moved America closer to ideals of a just society. But what was good for America was not great for the Negro Leagues, and their teams and leagues ultimately faded away by 1960. But if we focus on the impact of these black and Latin players on the field, we find remarkable results. These players' individual performances have ranked them among the greatest the game has ever known. Uh, and as I mentioned, in that first decade, black and Latin players, um, they win all the MVP awards. They win all the Gold Glove awards. They begin to win the Cy Young Award with Don Newcomb in 1956, the first Cy Young Award, which is for pitching. Um, and they just dominate. And it made segregation seem stupid. It's as simple as you can put it, because they begin to dominate. Most of the teams in the National League are getting all these players, and the National League wins the All-Star game like almost 20 years in a row as a result. Um, and these players have left an indelible mark uh, on the nation, and many of them are now being honored, have been honored over the years by the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And it recognized many of the great Latin players uh, from that time, including the young man that I was telling you about earlier. Um, we've come full circle to the young man in the photograph. And in the photograph, this young man goes on to, he's in Mobile, Alabama, and he goes on to join a team called the Indianapolis Clowns in the Negro Leagues. He soon, is, he was a cross-handed hitter, and once they told him, which means he, he, he was right-handed hitter, but he put the wrong hand over the other hand. And he could hit the ball great then, but when they told him to put the other hand on top, he tore up the ball wrecked it to the point that he spent a summer with the clowns and was quickly drafted by the Braves organization and would go on to become the all-time home run leader with 755 home runs. Who is that? Henry Aaron, the late great Henry Aaron, that's right. So as I mentioned, Aaron, Mays, um, Cepeda's father, played in the Negro Leagues and got their starts there. Um, we have close to, there were 35 total Negro Leaguers before 2006. Um, 17 new candidates were inducted that year, and most recently, Buck O'Neill, Minnie Minoso, and the late Bud Fowler, who played in the 1800s, were honored this past summer. So that's, that's really the Negro Leagues in a nutshell. There's a lot I could, more I could tell you about, and I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards with questions or anything like that. Uh, we welcome you to go to our website at nlbm.com, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Uh, we even have a new, two new websites that are about uh, the barrier breaker period that we call it, the integration period from 1945 to 1960. It's called barrierbreakers.nlbm.com. 
www.latinoculture.com. And one last website uh, on the connection between Latino culture and the black baseball leagues. And that's baseball, the Spanish spelling of baseball, which is B-E-I-S-B-O-L. If you actually type baseball in English, you'll get it too. But baseball.nlbm.com. Great websites, interviews with former players that you can, you can lock in on. And before I close, again, I want to thank um, you all for having me and the council for having me and the Agape group for having me here. Um, just on a personal note, uh, it's just a blessing that there's a group like this that's here to help and advocate uh, for the blind. Uh, and, and I hope you all appreciate the work that goes into what they do. Uh, I can say for myself um, that unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, or having to deal with this experience a little bit myself because I've been diagnosed with ice syndrome for a few years, uh, which um, has damaged my cornea in my left eye. So I basically have very little vision now. Um, so that had to be dealt with because I had very high eye pressures as well. Uh, so that requires uh, the amic glaucoma valve to be implanted in my left eye. So I had to deal with two things that I really, really don't like. Eye drops and needles. <laughs> and messing with my eye. I freaked out. But thanks to the good people at KU Medical Center um, and really, and really um, anesthesia with laughing gas is a miracle. <laughs> because they told me, you're going to be awake during surgery. Uh, <laughs> and I did. I was. And fortunately, the, the surgeon loved Motown music, so that was playing in the background. Uh, and we made it through with the, with the Lord's help and uh, plenty of anesthesia. So um, that's been a year, and we're working through those issues. But uh, uh, there may be a time where I'm going to need the help of MCB in a group like Agape. So uh, I hope, and I can see the great benefit that you all have from that. And just one last closing thing as I, as I, as I leave. Uh, I'm inspired by your name, Agape, and you know that in Latin that means love. And um, that was something that the great Buck O'Neill, for you Kansas Cityans know Buck O'Neill, uh, he would, in his speeches, talking about agape and love for one another. And I, I feel that in the room. I can see uh, the great way that you all help each other and love on each other. So thanks for having me, and keep, keep on loving each other. Thank you. Okay, one more time for Raymond. Let's give one more round of applause. Okay. Boy, you know I was loving it last night. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but uh, on a serious note, um, Raymond, um, that's one of the reasons why MCB, ACB, Agape, and all of these awesome affiliates exist. Because when the eye doctor is telling you that, hey, you're losing your eyesight, um, good luck on that. Here's some eye drops. That's where we fill in the gap. There are services that we have, um, and that's, that's what we are here for. 
That's one of the things that we uh, pride ourselves in. But we just want to thank you so much for bringing um, that information to MCB and for making this banquet such a uh, phenomenal event. We truly, truly appreciate it. Uh, I am going to turn this over now to our Madam President, uh, Kay. Can I just make that announcement? All right. Hey, Wanda, Matlock, would you like to come up here so we can do your presentation? Okay. Since I was a bad girl and left the member of the month names in my room, I had to go get them. So we're getting ready for that drawing, and Madam President is going to draw the name. So uh, congratulations to everybody. I got my fingers crossed. The member of the month, I'm sorry, the member of the year award goes to Donna Bishop. Is she here? Huh? Is she still here? <laughs> Are you still here, Donna? We'll get it mailed to her. All right. All right, we'll mail this out to her then. I'm good. All right, everybody. Now I'm going to turn it back over to Patrick, and we'll see where it goes from here. Take care. Okay, MCB. Woo! It has been a spectacular convention. But you know what time it is? You know what time it is? It's party time. But before we get there, okay, all right, okay. Now listen, we still have some things Sunday, okay? 7 a.m., we have Protestant services. So... That means church. That means church for some of you. Okay. Church for people like me. Church is at 7 a.m. Uh, Alpine Room 1, I believe. However, okay, 8 o'clock memorial breakfast. So, before, you know, we got to have something to say when we get to church. So, um, this evening we have... Eddie Brown and the collaborators. It is now time for the hold down. MCB, are you ready to party? All right, folks. We are going to turn this over to Eddie Brown. But for those of you who do not have any memories of this convention, we still have, you still have the opportunity to get a picture taken outside. It is $5 at a discount, and if you got your pictures yesterday, you have another opportunity. I'll be out there tonight. Uh, so, get your uh, honey bunny, or meet a new honey bunny, get your picture taken, and let's all have a good time tonight. Woo!